To avoid the carnage of another world war, Woodrow Wilson tried to craft a bold new system of global diplomacy. In 2014, I spoke to Harvard historian Erez Manila about what Wilson envisioned for his League of Nations and why it ultimately didn't last. Wilson sees the war as evidence that the balance of power arrangement has failed spectacularly and cannot be resuscitated. There cannot, in his view, uh, be a new order that is again based on balance of power. So then the question becomes for him, what is the alternative to balance of power? And the alternative that he comes up with is what we've come to call, I suppose, uh, the League of Nations. And I think that Wilson has in mind a fairly straightforward parallel between the League of Nations as he sees it and the U.S. Constitution as it was formed in the late 18th century. Uh, Because keep in mind that, uh, and Wilson knows this well, at the time of the Constitutional Convention, uh, the several states that the Constitution was going to bring together were sovereign international entities. Describe uh, Wilson's vision of collective security through the League of Nations uh, when he first imagined it. And tell me how that changed as a result of his war experience. Well, the issue that is often focused on when we think about collective security and the point that received the most critique in the debate in 1919 and after is the military commitment, that is, the sense that the collective security arrangements committed the United States to military involvement uh, in Europe or elsewhere, wherever conflict was going to break out. And actually, uh, Wilson was very, very clear, and he stated this numerous times explicitly, that the military intervention was going to be the very last resort, only if everything else has failed. And everything else meant two things that were to come before military intervention. One was what he called world opinion, his sense that once you get countries agreeing to be members, to join up, you will get countries and leaders starting to feel that they're compelled, uh, they have an interest in a sense. Now, if that wasn't going to work, if some country was going to take aggressive action despite these kinds of shared understandings, then the next stage was going to be economic sanctions. Uh, But here, this was going to be a multilateral process. So this is the innovation. The innovation is it wasn't simply going to be one belligerent was going to put the other belligerent under blockade. It was going to be that the world community, in a sense, was going to agree through the League of Nations to put an aggressive nation under economic sanctions. So that was going to be the next stage. And he was very clear that that was an important stage. So buy-in from the international community was one of the real key innovations that Wilson was pursuing. Absolutely. And I think, uh, I I mean, look, international organizations uh, had been in place for a while. And obviously, the clearest precedent here is the Concert of Europe that was put in place after the Napoleonic Wars, after 1815. But for Wilson, actually, it wasn't a very good precedent because the concert only took into account the views of the great powers. And Wilson actually strongly believed in this concept of the equality of nations, that the small nations, as they were called at the time, had to be involved in this. And in fact, he perceived, in a sense, the small nations operating as a kind of break on the ambitions of the great powers. How did the League of Nations that actually emerged out of the Treaty of Versailles, how did that differ from Wilson's original conception? Yeah, well, that's actually a really important question because one thing that's often missed in uh, 
The history is that the League of Nations covenant that emerged out of Versailles was a very different creature from what Wilson had envisioned. And I think the best example of this is through the evolution of what's known as Article 10 that guaranteed the security and territorial integrity of the nations, members of the League, and committed the other members to uh, intervening in various ways. Because what Wilson said in that draft was he started off by saying, yes, the League guarantees the security and territorial integrity of the member states. But then there was a very important and extended except. And he said, except in such circumstances, and I'm paraphrasing, except in such circumstances where changes in racial conditions and economic conditions and the desires of the peoples concerned will necessitate changes in borders pursuant to the principle of self-determination. And he said that in such cases, the League of Nations could, by a 75% or a three-quarters majority, could actually affect the redrawing of borders, of international borders. So he actually wanted to build into the League a mechanism for what can only be described as, uh, I suppose, a form of world government. Right. This is really pretty radical stuff. It is. It is quite radical stuff. Now, I want to emphasize, Wilson did not come by this radical idea easily. He came by it because by the end of the war, he was convinced that the old order was so broken and so dangerous that something radical had to be done to put together an international system that would work. It wasn't exactly what Wilson envisioned, but we do get a League of Nations sans the United States. Did it accomplish what Wilson thought it would? Well, obviously it didn't. It didn't even come close. Um, First of all, the League covenant that emerges from the negotiations in Versailles is quite different uh, from what Wilson had in mind initially. It's, to his mind, a watered-down version. He still defends it. He still wants the United States to join it. Um, And that's because he has an evolutionary view of such institutions. He thinks, as long as we can put in place something, even something very imperfect, we have a chance of it evolving in the right direction over time. Then the other problem is that the United States Senate rejects the Treaty of Versailles and the League Covenant that was attached to it. And so the United States, in fact, never joins the League of Nations. How much did Wilson's vision shape American foreign policy in the century that has followed? Oh, I think it shaped American foreign policy and American posture in the world to a very great degree. If we look at Franklin Roosevelt, I see Roosevelt as a convinced Wilsonian uh, who believes uh, in the Second World War that Wilson had it right in terms of the general principles but bungled the implementation because uh, he was a less-than-perfect politician. Um, and, and Roosevelt, I think, sets out to implement the Wilsonian vision, if you will, but to do it right. So he reconstitutes the League of Nations as the United Nations, and that system that Wilson put in place is not only not discarded, it's in fact bolstered and developed into the United Nations system that we have today, into the United Nations Security Council, the General Assembly, and all of the various other organizations uh, like UNESCO, like the World Health Organization, so on and so forth, 
uh, that in fact have a great deal of impact on the lives of, of people around the world. And so in that sense, I think we have to find that Wilson was right. The system that he believed in has in fact evolved, even if it hasn't fulfilled uh, all the hopes that he and others have had for it. Eris, thanks for making Wilsonianism safe for public radio. I really appreciate it. <laughs> thanks for having me. It was a great pleasure. Eris Manella is professor of history at Harvard University and author of the book, The Wilsonian Moment, Self-Determination and the International Origins of Anti-Colonial Nationalism. <laughs> 